is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Today we head to Kakadu, where rangers and traditional owners have already begun early season burns. Reducing the fuel is the name of the game, but it's also low intensity fires to protect our little animals. We're not burning their homes and we're not killing the trees that they live off, you know. Yeah, burning country in February, that is very, very early. What sort of results are they getting in Kakadu? You'll find out soon. Also today you'll hear about a camel dairy that is doubling its production to keep up with demand. And we'll get the latest on a landmark case getting underway in the Supreme Court today involving a mine, the Territory Government and the traditional owners of MacArthur River. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. And g'day there if you are tuning in via the podcast. First up today, let's talk about mackerel. So far this year, the weather has not been very kind to commercial mackerel fishers, but for those who have managed to get out, I'm told the fish have been plentiful and the money has been strong. Norm Hedditch has been in the mackerel game for years and says so far in 2023, his company has only managed one trip out. Uh, it's very difficult in January, February, March because we got the northwesterly monsoon, so we got a battle weather. Um, when there's a break in that monsoon, we try and get out there and get a hold of some fish for the market. So have you been able to get many boats out into the water so far in 2023? Uh, so far we've only done one trip. Yeah, it was only a four and a half day trip and they managed to catch two tonne of fish. But I'm very happy about that one trip because it was quite productive and uh, the prices were good because nobody else is out there catching the fish at the moment. Where is everyone else? Uh, Traditionally speaking, everybody ties up for the wet season because it's so unpredictable for the weather, but I like to have at least one boat ready, if not two, and as soon as there is a break in the weather, we get out there and get amongst it. We're next to one of your freezers here. Do you mind just opening up for a moment and explaining to the radio audience uh, what we've got here in terms of mackerel? What does it all look like? All right, here we've got cryovac packs of fillets. Uh, we do these especially for the people that don't want to buy a 5 or 10 kilo box. That little pack there is probably only about 600 grams. Um, we do cutlets as well in the cryovax. So that one there is probably only six or 800 grams. Um, so a person that doesn't want to buy a whole kilo, they just want to buy a feed for tonight, um, we can satisfy those customers as well. I'll close the lid here so we don't let that lovely warm Darwin air get into, get into the fish. But tell me, cooking barramundi versus cooking mackerel, is there much of a difference? No, not really. It all depends on the thickness of the fish, on how long it's going to take to cook. So uh, if you've got a nice, big, thick uh, fillet of mackerel, uh, you probably take twice as long to cook that as what a barramundi fillet was that's half the thickness. For you, the year ahead, how is it all shaping up? I'm a complete optimist, so I reckon it's going to be really good. (laughs) But what's giving you that wonderful optimism? (laughs) We've had a very good start to the wet season. Uh, We're already above average uh, for this wet season, uh, what we normally get. Uh, So good wet season, the rivers flow, all the nutrients come out, all the little prawns and everything, everybody eats. Uh, As far as the fish go, they grow bigger. So, um, nah, it's got to be a good year. 
And you mentioned that prices continue to climb in the right direction for you. What's behind that? Uh, it's definitely supply and demand. Uh, Queensland's had a bit of reduction in the amount they're allowed to catch. Uh, the WA fishery at the moment, um, all their boats are still in the duck pond in Darwin. They haven't started yet. Um, so anybody that can get out now in the next one or two months is probably going to do very well. So is that why you're busy at the moment working on a boat? Just to get it out there ASAP? Yeah, um, I've been on holidays, which was very good. So that boat hadn't been started since the 18th of December. And we went down and did our pre-start checks and and tried to run things up. And, um, well, guess what? We've got a few problems. So <laughs> get the engineers down there and see what we can do. Because yeah, you want that boat out there on the water as soon as possible. Absolutely. If, uh, if all goes well today, it'll be sailing tomorrow night. All the best with the rest of the season. Thanks for your time on the Country Hour. No worries. Thank you, Matt. That is Norm Hedditch from Taruna Proprietary Limited. If all goes to plan, the team there will be unloading a catch next week. Now on the topic of fresh, locally caught fish, the NT Seafood Council is today calling on territory businesses to get involved and support the national rollout of country of origin labelling for seafood. Since 2008, the Territory has been the only jurisdiction in Australia to have laws in place that sees imported seafood labelled as imported. So if you go to a Territory restaurant, fish and chip shop, anywhere selling seafood, that is correctly labelled. And now the federal government is pushing towards a national rollout of this. But the idea, it is open for public comment. Catherine Winchester is from the Territory Seafood Council. What do you want Territory businesses to do here, Catherine? We're really keen for Territory businesses to share their experiences um, of seafood labelling laws in the Territory, um, even if it's only a sentence to say how great it has been. Um, we know everyone's really busy at the moment, but just taking that couple of minutes to say how great the labelling's been in the Territory um, would be awesome. And why do you think this federal process needs to hear from Territory businesses? Look, the Australian government has been very clear that they are going to bring in seafood labelling laws nationally, which is so exciting. Like, it is the biggest Christmas present ever for the Australian seafood industry. And um, with everyone being busy, we've just had Christmas, it's the new year, um, it's not to, to be silent. Um, we would hate for the government to think that this isn't really exciting and it isn't really important. So we're just encouraging businesses to, if they can, take a couple of minutes um, to let the Australian government know, absolutely, you're on a winner. Um, and this is how great it has been in the Territory. And this is what it will mean for my business that if it's rolled out nationally, um, if they can take a couple of minutes, that is just so super valuable for the Australian government to hear that directly from businesses. I'm just looking at the government's feedback page is there a risk that this process could get derailed and we don't see a national rollout of country of origin labelling? Oh, look, I think there's, there's always risks when you're trying to introduce new legislation, but um, there was a forum just held um, in February with the Assistant Minister, um, uh, Tim Ayres, and it was just fantastic to hear the passion and the understanding um, from the Assistant Minister of how important this is. Um, the fact that the uh, hospitality industry here in the Territory has been working really closely with industry, um, the world hasn't ended, um, menus are changed now on such a regular basis because of cost changes and whatnot, um, the, the concerns that people had 
uh, are no longer there. Yes, there'll be some people that are still out there that won't want to see it happen because they like the fact that people don't know what they're buying and they, they can make a profit margin off of that. But overall, I think consumers want to know where it's from. The Australian government understands that. New laws are coming in. This discussion paper is a chance to help shape what those laws look like, make sure that it's simple, practical and cost-effective. Um, and that's why it's really important to check in with people rather than just go, oh, here's the new laws, um, it's happened. It's, it's, it's checking in and making sure that the new laws are in line with what's, um, uh, what businesses can do. And, and the really pleasing thing from the Australian government as well is that they really want to keep it simple and um, not overcomplicate things too, so, which is really refreshing. What's the argument against this? I've completely forgotten. Oh, you've forgotten. So, yeah, for 14 years the Territory has had this labelling law in place and we just think it's brilliant and we love it. But elsewhere in the country we, we um, have spoken to people in, in various sectors and we know, for example, there was one particular restaurant um, that was um, serving Australian barramundi on its menu um, charging, let's just say it was $35 for the dish. And then they swapped the barramundi over with imported barramundi, which is a lot cheaper, but still charging the customers $35 for the dish and not having anything on the menu to let them know that it wasn't Australian barramundi. It's unfortunately people taking advantage of the assumption that a consumer makes when it says barramundi, for example, when you're dining in the Territory or Queensland, or if you're down in South Australia and it says whiting, you're just assuming it's Australian whiting or Australian barramundi. So the labelling laws help give the consumer the information that they need to make an informed choice. Imported barramundi, imported whiting, imported flathead is an A-OK choice if that's what you want to buy. Um, but if you're not told whether it's imported or Australian, the price difference and what you're willing to pay for it certainly would change. And so these businesses over the years who, yes, have been selling barramundi, knowing full well that it's not from Australia, how much uh, cloud have they got behind the scenes? Oh, look, over the years, because this is something that the Seafood Council and um, our, our national um, uh, sort of efforts to try and get it rolled out, we've definitely come up against um, the barriers. But when you have the conversation with a lot of the venues as well, and you say, look, we're not saying imported is bad. So if you've got an RSL and you've got a, a really cheap fish and chips, that because that's what your customers are looking for, it's just to let them know that it's imported. Um, it, it's not you don't have to hide information. It's just about transparency. It's about letting the consumer know what they're buying. And what we've seen is that people still buy the $15 fish and chips when it says it's imported. They don't go, oh, I don't want that. They still want those cheap meals. So um, it's just making sure that people know what they're buying and they can make informed choices. But for some venues, it means no change. Like they'll, they'll continue to have their imported um, uh, dishes available and it would just be that people know that they're imported. On the government's website it, it says quite clearly that Australia will soon have country of origin labelling for seafood in hospitality. When are you expecting this to be rolled out? Um, uh, the Assistant Minister Tim Ayres did flag they want this done by the end of this year which is right. just very very exciting. So I'm assuming by the end of the year we know exactly what the national standard's going to look like. Um, 
you know, the, the legislation changes, whether or not they happen before the end of this year, but at least being clear on this is what the change is going to look like and then making sure that there's a, a, a smooth transition for businesses um, to implement those changes, have the education and awareness about it as well. But um, from my perspective, um, it, it is is making sure that businesses are aware this is coming, this is happening. Um, you know, we need to have conversations with the um, hospitality NT um, and its members up here once the national standard is landed on um, to be clear on what changes that might mean for businesses here. How do we support them? Um, how do we make sure it's not a big scary thing and it's really simple for everyone? Thanks for your time today. No, thank you very much, Matt. Uh, hi, it's Dwayne Klinkamer here on board the Austral Hunter, part of the Northern Prawn Fishery, and we're in the Mooring Basin, or better known as the Duck Pond in Darwin, and you're listening to the Country Hour. A landmark case is getting underway today in the Supreme Court involving a mine, the Territory Government, and traditional owners of MacArthur River. Uh, we'll learn more about this after a tune by the Wolf Brothers. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. A reminder, if you need to duck out into the paddock for whatever reason, you can always download the podcast and listen at a time that suits you. Traditional owners from the Gulf Country are taking the Territory Government to court today over a decision to slash the environmental bond for the MacArthur River Mine. I'm joined in the studio by Dan Fitzgerald. Dan, tell us what is happening in the Supreme Court today. So the Environmental Defender's Office, on behalf of TOs in the Gulf, uh, it is challenging a 2020 NT government decision which saw the bond for the MacArthur River mine reduced from $519 million to $400 million. So about $120 million reduction in that bond. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time, environmentalists warned that the bond was inadequate and could ultimately see taxpayers foot the clean-up for the bill. The mine's owner, Glencore, has said the rehabilitation and monitoring of the mine could continue for more than 800 years. (laughs) Say that again. Hang on a minute. Rehab of this mine could take more than 800 years. Yes, uh, okay. rehab and monitoring mm-hmm. um, because uh, it's, it's a huge mine. Yes. Uh, it's had some quite a few environmental problems over the years. Um, so, yeah, it will take a lot of effort to rehabilitate that mine. Uh, this action in the Supreme Court it is also challenging the approval of the expansion of the mine, which was uh, allowed without a mine closure plan, according to the Environment Centre NT. Uh, Garrow man Jack Green, he's one of the TOs behind the challenge. He's long campaigned against the mine um, and he's especially concerned with the diversion of the MacArthur River, which was allowed as part of that mine's expansion. I promise us keep on fighting until we get a better agreement from the mines and government to recognise Aboriginal people of this country. It's very hard for us to try and explain to our kids how that river used to be before and where that old snake lied across there, you know, and then one day dive out that river, that's where younger kids coming up and say, nah, the river used to be, river this way, Dad, what are you talking about, you know? And we keep on telling them, nah, the river used to be here. And it make it very hard, so it, it sort of complicate the kid a bit more. They've done the wrong thing by first up down there in the river, we've tried to fight them. Garrawa man Jack Green, he's from Borolula and he's one of the TOs behind this challenge in the Supreme Court. It's underway right now. It continues uh, today and tomorrow. 
ABC's got a reporter sitting in listening to that case. Uh, so we'll bring you, hopefully bring you more tomorrow and on the ABC News website. Thank you for that, Dan. It is 12 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Our top story yesterday was about Project Sea Dragon going into voluntary administration. So this ambitious project to build one of the world's largest prawn farms on Lejeune Station, it appears dead in the water, I think it's fair to say. You know, once you... uh Go into administration, it's very rare that you come out the other end, so uh, certainly sounds like the project uh, is finished, for these guys at least. And over the last decade, this project has lured a lot of government funding, including around $50 million from the Territory Government. Kirsty Howie from the Environment Centre NT is now calling for a public inquiry into how government money has been spent. This is a little bit like Groundhog Day for anyone who's spent any significant length of time in the Territory. We keep seeing these pretty grandiose schemes being put forward, often with very significant environmental impacts, which is what we're concerned about. And we should be doing our due diligence before we give these companies our wallets. And it's of huge concern to us that Project Sea Dragon It's another grandiose scheme. It's failed spectacularly, but we've spent millions of taxpayer dollars on this project. And these are dollars that could go elsewhere. I mean, I don't need to tell you or your listeners that we have got a struggling public infrastructure, health system, uh, you know, uh, other infrastructure that needs support and a rising cost of living uh, pressures as well. So it's, it's really concerning. And it's time that I think we had a reckoning Uh, as sort of a Northern Territory uh, political jurisdiction with exactly what we're doing with our public money uh, and what we're wasting it on. Kirsty Howie from the Environment Centre. If you would like to learn more about the fall of Project Sea Dragon, head along to our website right now. There's an article there to search for NT Country Hour, and there it is. This week on Landline, Australia's growing love of cherries. I find it very hard to go past a ripe cherry on a tree. <laughs> Just put it that way. I come out going, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that many cherries. And teaching kids rural skills early at cattle camp. You've got to have um, patience, discipline, all that stuff. That's Landline Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iview. Camel milk demand is on the rise, apparently, and it's been fuelled by people looking for alternative milk options. The milk is increasingly becoming known as a health product, but producing camel milk, that can be a bit challenging. Tara Hill operates a camel dairy in South Australia and says her business is in the process of doubling production to keep up with this demand. Demand for camel milk has been growing for sure on not only the milk um, but the other products such as cheeses that can be used for people with allergies to cow, goat and sheep milk. So in the Middle East, camel milk is a very old thing, a very well-known thing and also used in some of the hospitals. In the West, it is completely new. So we've got to get the word out there that it is a non-allergenic, highly nutritious product and it's a real dairy that people can have. Right, so you're hoping eventually maybe we'll start to see it become more in part of our everyday lives? For sure, but it will never be a high volume milk. So it's just not possible to get the volume out of a camel that you get out of a cow. So although we do serve camel milk lattes here on the farm, 
you know, we do a lot of summer tours and stuff like that, it will never saturate the market because you just can't get the volume. To give you an example, from a traditional cow, you would milk about 25 litres per milking and you would milk a cow twice. So say 50 litres from a cow per day. From a camel, you'd be looking at four litres per day. And how long have you been going with Humpalicious for? I think it's about eight years now. So it has been literally starting with wild camels straight out of the desert to domesticating and breeding and trying to increase that volume level just a little bit, you know, not too much as to change the genetics of the animal or anything, but trying to get the best out of them that we can. And has that been successful? Have you been able to get those numbers up to where you're happy with? We're definitely, we're getting better milkers, higher volume milkers. So, yeah, we're getting there slowly. Um, breeding is a slow process because gestation is 15 months. And in those eight years, is this the most demand you've seen for, for the milk side of things? It is. It's growing and it's building for sure. We're getting a lot of phone calls from health specialists. So it has managed to work its way into that medical research health market, which is really cool. That's where we all kind of wanted it to go. And that's the reason why we started with Camel Milk. We knew it was a real dairy that everybody could tolerate that was absolutely fantastic on the gut. So it was our motivation for starting in the first place. With all this increased interest, any chance the business would be upscaling or expanding or is it about right now? So we definitely are doubling volume next season um, to keep up with demand uh, because we're going into the cheese making as well and we also make a lot of gelato in summertime. Um, we have found that we need to double, so we will do that. But beyond that, probably not. We never had an interest in being a massive scaled dairy. We always wanted to stay small enough so that we have complete control over all of our animals and also the quality of the milk. TJ Hill from Humpalicious Camel Milk. So, is camel milk really good for you? Dr. Patricia Kazan works as a gastroenterologist in Adelaide and has been recommending it to her patients. She says for people who can't tolerate cow's milk, camel's milk is a particularly healthy alternative, if you can find it. We know that there is a rise in the cow's milk allergies across the world with some very interesting reports. The camel's milk has been shown to be less allergenic from all the mammalian milk and it shares the same nutritional or even probably better nutritional values than other bovine milk. So basically it has a lot of similar proteins and it's very rich in protein, richer than the cow's milk, but lack a very important protein called beta-lactoglobulin. And this protein has been shown to promote or to be the responsible for a lot of the cow's milk protein allergies in kids and in uh, of sensitivities in adult patients. When it comes to different milk alternatives, why camel's milk over something like soy milk or, or almond milk? It has a great nutritional value, basically. With oat milk and with almond milk and with soy milk, you always have to have a fortified version. You have to ask pediatric dietitians or dietitians, but they advise on fortified versions with calcium and vitamin D. And despite that, kids don't get the uh, all the requirements from having oat milk or uh, you know almond milk or soy milk. But with camel's milk, it has all of that. It's, it's nutritionally complete. It's amazing. That is Dr. Patricia Kazan speaking to Elsie Adamo. Now, just before we get to the one o'clock news, recently on this program, you heard from analyst Simon Quilty, who had some major concerns about Meat and Livestock Australia's prediction that Australia's cattle herd would reach nearly 29 million head this year. Mr Quilty felt MLA's numbers were well off and could be damaging for industry. I find them 
deeply concerning simply because I don't believe them. They have overstated the size of the Australian herd by 3 million head um, per year over the next three years. And simply, those animals do not exist. That was Simon Quilty on our program a few days back. Well, at Senate Estimates in Canberra this week, the head of MLA, Jason Strong, hit back at suggestions that his organisation was getting these numbers wrong. There's been some incredibly irresponsible commentary uh, about the herd numbers and unfortunately it's, it's come from a specific commentator who's got a track record of you know, trading on fear and anxiety and you know, they're also behind a lot of the really unnecessary commentary around exotic animal diseases last year. They've been responsible for uh, talking down the cattle price when it's been really high and unfortunately it makes great uh, fodder for media grabs but it creates a whole bunch of unnecessary fear and anxiety and um, what we actually see at the moment is we see an increasing herd which is bigger than we've seen for a long time but it's a result of the increased productivity and seasonal conditions that we've had um, but also the industry is able to has always demonstrated its ability to respond to opportunity and challenge, uh, which we'll do. Our relationship to international markets is much more sophisticated than it's ever been before. We have really sophisticated supply chains. Our end users are largely uh, focused on purchasing product from us, which is high quality, consistent, and they rely on continuity of supply. And the inference that there's going to be a breakdown in those supply chains because people perceive that there's going to be this increased supply of product that doesn't actually stack up against any of our recent experience. And you go back to the 1819 period again when we turned off more than eight, we processed more than eight million cattle. And while it was the largest proportional turnoff that we've seen in recent history, our livestock prices maintained at or above five year averages. So there's actually nothing to support those sorts of comments except someone's desire to get themselves in the media and get a media grab. That is Jason Strong, the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia, speaking at a Senate Estimates hearing in Canberra. I know I've spoken to a few analysts about this, and I can say that Simon Quilty's views are not in isolation. There are others who agree with him who just aren't willing to go public. It's an interesting one. Uh, We're going to go to the newsroom because it's one o'clock, but I will see you back here in five minutes for a chat with the Weather Bureau. We'll get the latest on what the monsoonal trough is doing, get a sense on what the next few days might look like. Uh, But now, it is time to go to the newsroom. See you back here soon. Hi, my name's Savannah Phillip. I work at Humpty-Doo Barramundi. We're currently feeding thousands of baby barramundi right now, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, you'll be off to Kakadu, where rangers and traditional owners have already begun early season burns. Reducing the fuel is the name of the game, but it's also low-intensity fires to protect our little animals. We're not burning their homes, and we're not killing the trees that they live off, you know. Yeah, burning country in February, that's very, very early. What sort of results are they getting there in Kakadu? You will find out soon. And we're hearing from you on 0487 99157 in regards to our earlier story about country of origin labelling for seafood 
and now the federal government's getting ready to roll this out nationally. I've got a text here from Charlie in Catherine who says, a good friend of mine worked overseas for several years and had stories of farmed Nile perch. Well, he would never eat imported barra, and to be honest, from what he said, no one should, reckons Charlie in Catherine. I remember years back I met a bloke in WA. He was selling fish and chips. He didn't know who I was or what sort of job I did, but he told me about how he was getting catfish out of South Africa from memory. That's what he said. And he was just over the moon that he was managing to flog that off as not catfish from South Africa. It's not good. You'll wonder how many businesses around the nation are doing that type of thing. If there's lots of them, well, their D-Day is approaching. The government looking to roll this out by the end of the year, according to the NT Seafood Council. If you miss that conversation in the first half, it'll be up on the podcast. Remember that. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. And Rebecca, after a few very interesting days in the Gulf of Carpentaria, things have gone a bit quiet on the territory side of the Gulf anyway. Yeah, that's right. So that a low pressure system has moved southeast. It's now in the southeast Gulf of Carpentaria, um, north of about Mornington Island. So um, Sharon storm activity across the territory has really wound down. Um, Queensland sucking all the moisture it would seem. Yeah, that's right. So that moisture's coming down on the eastern side of the low and we're getting the dry air on the on the western side of the low. So um, yeah, Queensland expecting buckets. Um, we're not getting so much at the moment. To 9am this morning, I think our highest rainfall was about 15 millimetres in the whole of the territory. So Gee, yeah. Um, so yeah. just looking at the radar there out of Queensland, you know, it's, it's, it's raining heavily, it would seem, in places like Weeper up in the Cape Country, but also cattle country around Julia Creek, Richmond, getting some decent rain. What's the chances of this system swinging back west and, and, and delivering some rain into the Barkley? Um Good to um, get some rain. Uh, so the system's expected to track southwards today and probably make landfall uh, tomorrow morning, um, probably east of the border, uh, but then expected to move southwest and back into the territories. So we are expecting rainfall to be increasing uh, particularly across the eastern parts of the Barclay district from tomorrow. So we could see some heavier falls um, along that eastern border area of the Barclay and also in the eastern Carpentaria. So getting up around that 70 millimetres isolated falls of, of about that much. Um, perhaps more widespread, looking at more around 10 to 30 millimetres over the eastern parts of the Barclay. Uh, that system is expected to track westwards across the weekend, though, so we are expecting that rainfall to spread westwards through um, into the, the Gregory and Tanama districts over the weekend. Ooh, OK. Well, we've got a question here from Mark who says, will there be any major storms to produce any flooding in the Rabbit Flat, Tanami Downs, Granite area in that next low system? I assume he's referring to the one that might swing through on the weekend. Yeah, um, so we are expecting more rainfall 
down probably the northern half of the Tanami more likely than the, the southern parts. Um, and the, in terms of rainfall numbers, not expecting as much as we're getting over the Barclay. Um, but, yeah, could see a little bit of rainfall, perhaps getting up to 30 millimetres with isolated high falls um, with storms over the, the northern Tanami and the Gregory District. And in central Australia... Do you have any good news in terms of a cool change? Because once again, a, a very hot day today for so many. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, definitely seeing very hot temperatures, particularly in the Lassiter district. Um, seeing those temperatures for the next week, staying up close to that 40 degree mark, which is um, yeah not too pleasant over that way. Uh, for those in the Simpson district, it does depend if you're in the north or the south. So southern areas will remain pretty hot if you're around Fink, um, for example. But the um, the northeast is going to be getting a bit of that rainfall potentially, or at least the cloud coming across. Uh, so Jervoice 39 today, but then dropping to 33 and staying in the low 30s for the next few days after that. Okay. Anything else we need to be aware of right now? Um, it's mainly that rainfall in the Barclay uh, yeah. that will drop temperatures a bit as well. So getting down to the the high 20s for the maximum temperatures over the weekend. Yep. Thanks for your time this afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That is Rebecca Patrick. When we look at the Bureau's website, when it comes to temperatures, my goodness, it's warm in the centre. Colgra and Fink both expecting a top of 41 degrees today. Curtin Springs, Yalara. Expecting a top of 42. Tales from the tinny. It was over a metre the mackerel. It's come through the hatch, went absolutely mental and gave me a black eye. Next minute this bucket has come flying out of the water and I was like, oh no, I've only got 40 pound line on. Subscribe to the podcast. Yes, I do a mean Stingray Luxor. You think you're the only one that makes a Stingray Luxor? I haven't heard of anyone else. There was a lot of fish in the 90s and I also... really had to bleed this data out of you. You're being a little yeah, cagey on this yeah, one. Yeah, you're practising to be a politician. Or reel it in anytime you like <laughs> on the ABC Listen app. Was that the tinny giving Warren DeWitt a bit of curry? That's what it sounded like. 12 past one, you are tuned into the Country Hour. Now, there hasn't been much rain around Matarenka this week, but that hasn't stopped the Little Roper River from coming up, with reports that it's now some 200 metres wide in parts near the Matarenka homestead. Des Barrett is at the Little Roper stock camp and says there was obviously a lot more rain further upstream. Well, the river... The Little Roper itself has come up about 800. There's three different signs, and they all measure different heights, So, yeah, but basically around 800. So it's sort of, you know, in a land cruise, you can still drive through it, but, um, yeah, I've got a boat down there as well, so it's got to the point now where you can't drive through it, and we used to walk through it at that sort of height, but, um, yeah, it's not, we can't anymore, it's... I reckon I've seen a few salties down there. So, yeah, and, and everyone else on this side of the river's got boats. It's sort of fairly standard this time of year. Like one year before we'd bought our place, it um, stayed up three months. So, yeah. Have you had a lot of rain there recently, Des? Where's where's all this no, water well, coming from? Not really. That the and the I mean the bizarre thing is this this rain was up around sort of Manyalak like the headwaters of the Little Roper are a bit more west than the headwaters of the Waterhouse River. 
And um, so, yeah, they would have had, you know, 60 mil for a few days of work up that way. And last Thursday, for example, the creek there, they call it Roper Creek, where it crosses central Arnhem, high old road, and they that was about two metres high. So we're getting that. It takes, funnily enough, it takes about a week to get down there. How much more would that river need to rise to, you know, make you a bit nervous for the homestead? Well, we're not actually at the homestead. The homestead on the waterhouse, we're on the middle road. But the, it, it needs to get another six metres. It's not going to do that at the moment. So, you know, we sort of, last year we had to move caravans and relocate people to Marinka homestead. We can get out the back way. But, um, you know, when we bought the place, we knew it had a potential to flood. So you make your plans and... It's like buying beside an airport, you know, when you're out, you just, yeah, that's why you got it a bit cheaper than normal. Right, but it's a long way off that at the moment. It's way, it's way off. It's, yeah, not even close. Uh, this is what makes the barramundi go up and down and breed. And so we really need it. So it's, it's, it's good news. It's not bad news. It's, you know, it was romantic the first bit of time, first few times, but, um, yeah, that's more off. Now it's just a bit of a, a pain if you're going across when it's dark and it's raining and there's lightning, but eh, that's part of it all, isn't it? You know, living in paradise. And so what's the wet season been like this year, Des? Yeah, it, it's it's still nothing special. We haven't got um, 500 mil yet. We're, we're at our place... It's still at four fifty, and it's it's been one of those wets that's really hit and miss, you know. Like only about three weeks ago, my neighbour, who lives only a couple hundred metres away, got thirty mil more in one rain event. So it's still really similar. Like when you look at the um, posts on the on the internet, um, Sturt Plateau, no one ever has the same. It's all it's all really varied, so it's it's not one of those sort of good wets where everyone almost gets the same amount. It's just those little storms coming over. And, I mean, it's good for grass, so the pastoralists are very happy. Um, apart from the fact a lot of them have, it's, because it's so sporadic, some of their dams still aren't full, even though we're sort of halfway through or getting towards halfway through February. So if you're stressed a bit out about that, but then again, they haven't had the major floods that wreck fences. So it's a two-way go sort of thing. That is Des Barrett from Little Roper Stock Camp near Matarenka speaking there to Max Rowley. The Little Roper River up and going. It is 17 past one. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Early season burns have already started in the Kakadu National Park. I'll take you there next. That is Tommy Curtin and the tune Roper River. In the middle of the wet season and with the country looking so green across the top end, you wouldn't think right now is a good time to be burning. Most 
Savannah burning in the top end is done during the early dry season months. And it's done to reduce the risk of severe fighters later on in the year. But burning in February? Well, at Kakadu National Park, rangers and traditional owners have been busy burning country over the last few weeks. Max Rowley went along to find out why and see how they're going. It's a cloudy morning at the southern end of Kakadu National Park and amongst the green wet season growth, rangers are starting to light fires. Uh, Yes, so this is one of our fire breaks uh, that we use to protect the ranger station and we're using wet season burning because this particular area had a lot of hot fires go through it. That's senior ranger and traditional owner, Joe Markham. Uh, So it was sparse and the fires weren't continuing through so we've saved the fuel and now we're going to use the wet season burn to to reduce it and protect our assets. Yeah how do you tell from an area whether it's right for wet season burning? Uh, basically you look for the green and you look for the brown. The brown is the cured grass so that's actually what you're burning or what, you, what the fuel is and that'll, that'll kill the green which is the grass. So you're kind of looking for the, the old growth, the understory? Yeah, so the old growth, we're lighting that and we're using that to reduce fuel loads. Looking at some of this area at the moment, it's pretty green. Um, uh, I'm surprised that it's burning so well. Uh, yeah, it's, um, like I say, you just, you're burning that old growth, not the green one, and the green one dies off in the heat. Um, you can see on the opposite side of the road that that, that was lit in the dry season. And there's less of a fuel load. You don't see that brown spear grass in there. Whereas on this side, you, you do see it. And that's what we're burning today. So if you tried to burn here, for instance, on the other side of the road? It probably wouldn't light now because there's actually nothing. This leaf, bit of leaf litter would light, but you wouldn't. it'd go out as soon as it went into the green stuff because there's no brown stuff. And what's the benefit of, of burning at the moment? Uh, we, we reduced the, reducing the fuel is the name of the game, but it's also low-intensity fires to protect our little animals, um, the possums in there, the bush rat. We've got sugar gliders in these big hollow logs. So with a low-intensity fire, we're also um, we're not burning their homes and we're not killing the trees that they live off, you know. So out of the area that we burn early in the dry season, that's about uh, 35% of the park and then about 5% maybe. 4 or 5% might be wet season burning. Anna Pickworth is the fire management officer for Kakadu National Park. It's something that over the years, if you do really good early dry season burning and wet season burning, you can bring in much more diversity into the uh, landscape, much more barriers to fire. And so as we do this more and more each year, those kind of percentages might change around a bit. So as the country um, becomes less flammable in general over time, Uh, then we may be able to burn less of the park each year. She says wet season burning is about removing spear grass before it seeds. If there's areas of spear grass, particularly that didn't burn the previous year, um, then there's a whole lot of dry old grass there and you can use that old grass to put a fire through the new grass when it's coming up. Um, That then kills the, the new spear grass and so that spear grass doesn't seed and then it just knocks spear grass out of that whole area. So it kind of has the result of reducing a lot of the grass in the country, and that can give the country a bit of a break 
from fire and it can give uh, plants a chance to, to grow up a bit bigger or just to have, have a break from fire and from other things uh, to grow other than spear grass. And so it's about dealing with a native spear grass though? Yeah, so people say that there possibly didn't used to be so much spear grass around in this landscape. Uh, so when Aboriginal people managed the country before whitefellas got here, then there's, there's a strong uh, idea that it, there wasn't so much spear grass. And then when people were moved off country to missions and the country became stations and things like that, that a lot, there was a lot of frequent and probably mostly hot fires and that promoted um, spear grass to become more dominant. Um, so, yeah, that's why we're using uh, wet season burning as a technique to kind of reduce that spear grass over time. How effective has it been for kakadu? I think it's a, it's a really effective tool. Um, there's much more perennial grasses in there. There's much more diversity um, in the type of plants that are coming up. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really good thing for country. And are there any risks to burning at this time of year? Yeah, so the risks to wet season burning, because uh, it, it, it does um, take away the vegetation cover for, for an amount of time after you've done it and it's in the wet season, um, it can cause erosion. So we don't do any wet season burning on slopes. And that's some research that's been done in the past. Um, also, we've had a little bit of experience with um, certain types of weeds coming up after wet season burning, uh, particularly crotalaria. So we don't uh, wet season burn in, in the areas where, where that is. And what does a changing climate mean for the way you burn and the way you manage the landscape? So really, climate change is making fire man- management just more critical up here, like the landscape's getting... Uh, hotter and drier and the wet season actually getting a little bit bigger but over a shorter period of time so it just makes it much more important uh, to do all our early dry season burning and our wet season burning that's happening right across the the north of Australia. Uh, So many people doing such good work nowadays with fire management so it just makes all of that so much more important Um, and also obviously wildfire response in the late dry season, so stopping those big late season fires burning through the country. My name is Basic Holman and I'm working with a clan group. And what are you doing today? Walking with new generation, watching them burning grass and they get the skill, I got the knowledge. I'm watching them. And you were just speaking in language. What, what were you saying? Today they burn the grass. I asked the old people, our ancestors, we're cleaning up the grass, keeping nice and clean. And why is it important to, to burn country? Because we've been doing from generation to generation, from our ancestors. We learn from our ancestors. And my parents, my mother passed it down to me. I'm passing it down to my granddaughters and grandson. They clean up so new growth can come and people can go hunting looking for bush food. Just looking at so it's not hot fire. It's going to be cool fire. They do bits and fire break. You know, they got fire break all the time. And we've been doing it this for a long time with the ranger staff and the traditional owner. I do a lot of helicopter fly. I burn from the air. And I burn on the ground too. And how is this fire burning today? It's really good and I'm happy. And I like the smell of the smoke. 
Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This is Bessie Coleman, who is a Jarwin traditional owner, and in that story by Max Rowley. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. Now, just before I let you go this Thursday lunchtime, do you remember a few weeks back on this program, uh, we spoke to researcher Hugh Davies from Charles Darwin University. He came onto the program to talk about some of the work he and his colleagues have been doing around buffalo and flagged this idea of culling feral buffalo and being able to earn carbon credits. Uh, Remember this? Uh, So buffalo are ruminant animals, which means that they emit large amounts of methane through their digestion. And methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. And um, currently feral buffalo numbers are increasing across northern Australia, meaning their emissions are too. So the whole idea of our research was that if we can keep their numbers under control, we can avoid greenhouse gas emissions, potentially generating carbon credits, um, which... Um, might then be able to be sold and make money. Yeah, shoot a buffalo, earn a carbon credit. It's an interesting idea. What does the NT's buffalo industry make of this, though? We'll be joined tomorrow by the Territory's Tom Dawkins, who is from the NT Buffalo Industry Council. Looking forward to that discussion. So I'll catch you tomorrow at 12.30. Keep it rural. Keep it rural.